Well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Let's go ahead and start by going to Genesis chapter 12. <clears throat> yeah. Susie says she can find it. Just go to the front of the book and kind of moves forward about 12 chapters. And so we're seeing, in Genesis chapter 12, we're studying what we call the patriarchs. And when we say that, we're talking about the lives of four great men in the Bible. Now, the word patriarch, and if you follow along, if you get behind, or if you miss out what you're looking for or something, holler at me and I'll give you the answer. Uh, and we'll embarrass you in front of everybody. But go ahead and do that. But the word patriarch actually means the head of a family or a tribe. So when you say, like, my grandfather, he was the patriarch of our family. And so when we think about the patriarchs and we think about the Bible, we think about the, the heads of the Jewish nation. That's what we're looking at. Usually we find Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the patriarchs. But what we did for this study to make it kind of flow and really be good, we're doing Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And that really basically, basically takes us through the book of Genesis. And we won't be studying Genesis in the sense like we would if we had it on a Sunday morning or something where we'd go verse by verse, passage by passage. We're going to be looked at events from the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And so we're going to see their patriarchs. We're going to see their in lives, their events. And we're going to see something amazing because the Bible never covers anything. There are going to be times where you'll see Abraham and he'll be amazing. And we'll say, how could he even do that? And then we'll see him do something, and you'll go, how could he even do that? And, and then we look at our own lives and, and see the same thing. So the Bible never covers up anything. It tells about what people are like. Let's think about the patriarchs for just a second. In, in chapters 12 through 23, we're going to see the life of Abraham. We call him a man of faith. He believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness. He, he was like a man of faith. And then in chapters, and notice, look, look, we saw all that on Abraham. But look, 24, 25, and 26, basically two, two and a half chapters is Isaac, and he's the son through which the seed would come. Now, I call Isaac the quiet man. And the reason that is that uh, he, he's the guy born to uh, Abraham when Abraham was 100 years old, and he's faithful. He does some things that, that there's just not a whole lot about him. And people say, well, Isaac's kind of the forgotten man. He is, but there's some great things about him. And then we're going to look at Jacob in chapters 27 through 36. Jacob is the one who God changed his name, Jacob, which means deceiver or tripper-upper to Israel, which is prince of God. And he, he's going to see great victories from Jacob's life and great failures from Jacob's life. And, and we'll see that. And then the last guy, it's Joseph. Now, there's a lot about Joseph, but there's a whole lot of events, and we won't go on to every aspect of his life, but we're going to hit on some good things. Joseph was the beloved son. He was used by God. He's a picture of, he's actually a picture of Christ. Joseph is a picture of Christ, and we see some great events. Uh, a lot of people say that uh, there, are no, there are no sinful things written about Joseph. I think we'll find one or two. And but uh, but most of the time when you think of Joseph, you think about what a great guy. So as you look at your outline, lessons one through five are going to deal primarily with Abraham. Now there are going to be some other things involved in there, but we're going to look at lessons one through five. We're going to look at Abraham. Then in lesson six is just going to be about Isaac. And you could look at that and say, "This only got one lesson about Isaac." Well, Isaac's mentioned in in some of the others, and then Isaac is mentioned uh, uh, basically in seven on as well. So he he's just not there's just not a whole lot about him, but there's some incredible things about him. And then in lessons 7, 8, 9, and 10, which we'll, of course, be studying, we, we're going to be looking at Jacob. And Jacob's one of my favorite people in the Bible, simply because Jacob is a scoundrel, and, and yet he's, he's good. He's, he's good and bad at the same time. And that's why I think his name is Deceiver and Prince at the same time, so to speak. And when you think of Jacob, God is called in the Bible the God of Jacob. He's called the God of Jacob more than any other name, more than any other title. He's the God of Jacob. And then, I don't know why, but it didn't have it up there, but lessons 11 through 14 should say Joseph. And so that's the last lessons we'll be looking at. So in the weeks to come, we're going to see the four patriarchs. We're going to see their lives. We're going to look at application. We'll have some quizzes. Some of the quizzes, some of the questions are going to be just to help you be able to put together the flow of the Bible. One of the things that I find is that so many people uh, that they go to church and they've gone to church all their lives. And they go on a Sunday morning, and the pastor is in Matthew chapter 6. And they go the next Sunday morning, and he's in John chapter 4. And they go the next Sunday morning, and he's in Philippians chapter 2. And they never understand how the Bible fits together. First of all, they never get a clear message of salvation. But the second is, if you start saying, where does all this fit? That's why you can talk to people and you say, go ahead and turn over to Ezekiel. And they don't know where it is. 
or if you could say to them, um, you, you know, let's look over at First and Second Chronicles, or let's look at that. They don't know where that is. Or you can even say, uh, you know, look at John or First John, and they'll turn to John because they don't realize there's a First, Second, and Third John because they just don't know the Bible well enough. And one of the reasons we do the 2-2, one of the reasons we do the 4-12 is, uh, is so that people can have a grasp of the Scripture. So even when we study this class, we're going to see the book of Genesis put together through four lives. So it's going to be a lot. going to be some good stuff. Well, we all make promises. Uh, we say, I promise I'll be there. I promise to he- I'll help you. But we have to be real careful when we make a promise. Like we say, I promise I'll be there on that opening night of the class. But that, there's, there's no guarantee you can be there because you're not God. You could go out to come to the class and the car won't crank. Or you could get sick. Or you, you have to suddenly, you, something comes up and you have to fly out of town. You, you never know. So we can't always keep our promises. And, and sometimes things happen, but God always keeps his promises. And I've got there for you, God keeps his promises. Why? Two reasons. God's promises are always true because he can't lie. And he's all-powerful. When you think about it, I've got out verse Titus chapter 1, verse 2, says, God who cannot lie promised eternal life. But the truth is, when he makes a promise, since he can't lie, and since his character is that he can't lie, then you can be sure that if he says, I give you what? Eternal life. What do you have? Eternal life. Because he can't lie, right? And then the second thing is that he's all-powerful. And he could say, I promise you eternal life, but he might not be powerful enough to give it to you, but God is all-powerful. So if he says, I can do something, or I will do something, he's able to do it. Romans chapter 4, I put it verse the verse down there for you, 421. You don't have to go look all that up. But it says, being fully assured that what God has promised, he is also able to perform. That means whatever he says he's going to do, he does because he's able to do it. And so it's really, really powerful. So as we study the patriarchs, we're going to see God makes a lot of promises to them. Tonight, I'm going to be drawing on the board. I hope everybody could be able to see it. But I'm going to be drawing on the board because he makes some promises to Abraham tonight. In fact, how did, what is the, the, your title of your, of your lesson? What does it say? Abraham what? Uh, it, call and covenant. Uncle, we're going to talk about that. And so there's a lot of great things. So we're going to look at Abraham and the promises. So let's think about the patriarchs, but to do that, we've got to get a little background. And when we look at the background, we think about the Bible. The Old Testament is divided into four sections. The Torah, which is the law. You can write law or Torah. Uh, most of the time, the Torah is sort of the, uh, the Jewish-Hebrew way to say it, but it means the first five books are the law. And then there's the history, the writings, and the prophecy. We know the law is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The history, of course, starts with you know Joshua and Judges and goes all the way through. And then the writings are Psalms and Proverbs and you know Job and Psalms. Solomon and Ecclesiastes, and then the prophecies, of course, start with Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentations, Ezekiel and Daniel, and then the Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, all, you know, so we've got, that's how the Bible fits together. Well, the, the Genesis is in the first five books. In fact, Genesis is the first book. And I think probably for so many people, when you start talking about studying the Bible, a lot of people, maybe the first time they ever really want to get into the Bible, they naturally turn to the front of the book, right? I mean, that, when I trusted Christ, I was 19. I'd never had a Bible, never really read the Bible. And they, I got a Bible. They gave me one. Nap, my pastor, you know, the guy who led me to Christ, gave me a Bible. Well, what do you do? Naturally, I went right to the front of the book. And I started reading Genesis. And I was so amazed at the stories. That what was, I thought, I couldn't believe all this, you know, for all, you know just, you know, the, the people and Adam and Eve and all that. I mean, just so much good stuff. And so when, when, when we look at Genesis, we're going to get the word. What does Genesis mean? Anybody know? It means beginning. This is the beginning of everything. Everything begins in Genesis. And so let, let's think about the book. And you, Genesis is divided into two big sections. If you can tell in Genesis chapter one through, chapters 1 through 11, four great events Four great events. So that, this is a good way to remember it. One of the things, I've, I've got a study I've been working on, which is called the Bible, num, the Bible by Numbers. And we'll do like one this, two this, three this, four this, and put them all together. Well, one of the things to remember about how the book of Genesis fits together is in Genesis 1 through 11, there are four great events. But in Genesis 12 through 50, chapters 12 through 50, there are four great people. And you can remember <clears throat> the book of Genesis by remembering the events 
and by remembering the people. You know, in chapters 1 through 11, you, you get uh, the, the before the creation, then the creation, and the fall, and the flood, and nations, and all these things. And then in chapters 12 through 50, you get people like Abraham and Isaac and the people that dealt with them. Chapters 1 through 11 covers a long period of time. Now, the first 11 chapters of the Bible, there's no telling exactly how long it covers. Many, thing, many people think it covers you know, 8,000 years. We just don't know them. Now, if you talk to a scientist and a non-believer, they'd say millions of years, but it's not millions of years. But anyway, so first 11 chapters deal with a long period of time, and then chapters 12 through 50 only covers about 300 years. These lives only cover about 300 years. Let's look at, for just a second, the four great events. And I have creation, fall, flood, and division. If you want to write out beside that, just think about creation. Uh, have you, has anybody ever told you that the Bible has a mistake at the very beginning? That when you read chapter 1 and you read chapter 2, you have two different creation stories and, you know, something's wrong. They're not. The Hebrew way of writing is always gives a big overview and then from that overview takes the most important thing and talks about it again. And that's why it'll say, this family was this, 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 and they names the sons, and then they come back and pick one of the sons out and goes a lot of details. Genesis chapter 1 gives the big overview of creation and the six days of creation and all of those things. In the six days of creation, what is the most important event? Creation, yeah. I mean, who, who's the pinnacle? Who was made in the image of God? Creation of man, okay. What's chapter 2 about? Chapter 2 is the details of the creation of man. So in Genesis, the very first part, the, the creation story is incredible because God spoke. And by the way, we, we'll, someday we'll do this. We've done it in some other studies. But people always want to say, are those literal days or not literal days? They're literal days. In the Hebrew, the only way you could read it, if you, had, if you know Hebrew and you sit down and you read Genesis chapter 1, if you ask anyone, if you ask Moses when he wrote it down, if you ask the Jewish people when they read it, they would say, those are six literal days. They never would have said, oh, those are long periods of time. Or the, they never would have thought that way. Because that's not that, the way the Hebrew is written, it is written to say this is a 24-hour time period. So that when you think about the creation, that's pretty amazing. And then there's the fall. And, of course, we've all studied that. We've studied it in the 2-2. We've studied it in the 4-12. How God put man in the garden and told them they could do, you know, the only thing they had to, to worry about, the only, they, they could eat anything except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day they ate that, what would happen to them? Dying, they would surely die. There's two dies there. Dying, you will surely die. I think it was the idea of spiritual death results in physical death. And that's what happened. And they, we went in the garden and started in Genesis chapter 3 where Satan came and tempted them and they fell and God made a promise of a Savior. So that's some, that's some, that's some great things there. Then there's the flood, of course. And when you think about the flood, how, how amazing was it that... God said, I'm going to destroy the entire world by a flood. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah and his wife, his three sons, their three wives, eight people, built an ark, took them 120 years, it's gigantic, 450 feet long, bigger than foot, football field and a half, 75 feet high. I mean, just gigantic. And they built that thing, got on there, and it saved mankind. And then the division, after they came off the ark, the ark and everything looked fine, people began to come together, and they decided, God said, I want you to be fruitful and multiply, and do what? Fill the earth. And they said, no, I think we're going to stay right here and build a tower. We'll do our own thing. We'll worship ourselves. And he, he's confused their language, and that's Babel, and they, they had to, to divide and to move. So that's the four big events that you find in that book. And now, what about the four great people? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And if you think of Abraham, if you want to write down, by just, just put the father of the Jews. You can write that down. He's a great man of faith. Uh, you don't have to put a lot of details. In fact, on some of this, we're going to really get into them as we go through the study. But he, he's the beginning of the chosen people. How is it that this one group of people who is so small, and if you take a globe, if you, you ever taken a globe and then tried to find Israel on the globe? 
And you get over there and you see Egypt there. and you see, But finally you see this thing on the globe. It's about that big and that's Israel. And that's the most important place in the whole world. And the Jewish people are the most important people in the whole world. And it, truly everything revolves around them. Why do you think so many people hate them? Because it's a fallen world led by Satan and they're God's people. And naturally they're going to be hated all the way through history. So Abraham was the beginning. Isaac, of course, is the quiet man. Jacob renamed Israel. We're going to see great victory and great defeat and then our failure. And then Joseph. Uh, sometimes you put, Joseph shows a great picture of forgiveness because what happened with his, with his brothers and so there's some good things. Well, tonight we start with Abraham. And I, I, I say Abraham, I know this. And I'm going to call him Abraham, but in the first part of the book, his name's Abram, which means Big Daddy. That's what it means. It means high father. It means I'm a big daddy. And God changes his name to Abraham, which means father of many nations. Now, what's strange is he had the name Big Daddy and he didn't have any children. And he's 75 years old when you meet him. But we'll see more about that in a minute. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at three big things tonight. And we'll go, we'll go fairly quickly. And if you have questions, comments, input, just stop me. Uh, I've not taught these lessons before, so I don't really know how exactly how long they go. If we're still here in the morning, we'll go get breakfast, okay? But I think we'll be okay. We're going to look at the background. We're going to look at the promise and the covenant, which is the key. By the way, this chapter tonight is the key to the whole Bible. Do you understand that? It's the key to the Bible. And we'll see it here in just a minute. And then we're going to see failure. And, and we hate to see failure, but that's what we see. So let's look at background. And this starts, uh, you, you want to go back a little bit. You're in chapter 12. You just want to go back a little bit to chapter 11. And I want you to look at verse 27 of chapter 11. And we find some people. It says, now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Okay? Most of you know that I, I, I can't spell because of my dyslexia. So I can write anything up there and I'll tell you what I think that means Terah. But that's Terah. Okay, now look who Terah is. Terah became the father of who? Abram. Abram and who else? What's the names? Are y'all looking at it? Nahor and Haran. Okay, there's, that's the three sons of Terah. And so we say, really, there we got Abraham's daddy right there. And, and then he says, Haran... Uh, became the father of Lot. Now, why? Now, this guy has a son named Lot. Wonder why God brings that out? Because he doesn't talk about anybody else's kids. Wonder why? You know why? Because look at the next verse. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in the earth of the Chaldeans. What you're going to find out is when he dies, Abraham takes Lot and brings him with him. And from the rest of the way, Lot's going to be with Abraham. Or Abram, so we'll just we'll call whatever we want to call him. We we know, okay. Now, so the very first thing, where's my little clicker deal? Okay, so here we got Terah, which is Abraham's father, and um, there. If you notice, they're in the place called the Ur of the Chaldees. I, can y'all see the map? Okay. Yes. Okay. All right. Let me find this little thing here. Okay. Here's Ur. Way down here. Now, if you start looking, there's Egypt, and there's the Sinai Peninsula, and that says Canaan, that's modern-day Israel, and that's Syria. And then you get over here, and this is modern-day Iraq. And there's Nineveh, which was the capital of the Assyrian empires. There's Haran. That's, it's named after the Haran who died. And then there's Ur, way down here, Tigris-Euphrates River, and there's Babylon. Now, Baghdad, the city of Baghdad today is about 30 miles north of where Babylon is. When Saddam Hussein was the, the supreme ruler, ruler of, of um, them, he, 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 he thought he was going to be the new Nebuchadnezzar. He actually tried to rebuild Babylon. We know that in the end times, Babylon is going to be rebuilt and is going to be the capital of where the Antichrist sets up his kingdom. So all of this goes together. So there's Ur of the Chaldees. The people usually in the Ur of the Chaldees were worshipers of the moon. Now we don't know about Abraham's background or anything, but God calls him and Abram or Abraham believes the true God. And so we're going to see all that. So they're going to leave Ur and they're going to go all the way up to Haran. And then after everybody dies, they're going to leave, after, after Terah dies, he, they're going to leave Haran, and they're going to go all the way down to Canaan, okay? And that's what's going to happen. And so that's why I got down at the bottom. Where is Ur? Ur is really modern-day what? 
Iraq is what it is, okay? And Terah is Abraham's father. Now, we're going to meet somebody as we go through this thing. Let me move this around so you can see it. 29. Abraham and Nahor took wives for themselves, okay? The name of Abraham's wife was what? Sarah. Sarah, Sarah really. Now, I had, I, had done, I had read for years that Sarah meant nagger and that Sarah means princess. But the more I study it and the more I've looked at Hebrew and more and more and more, the name Sarah means princess. And the name Sarah also means princess, but it has more of a, a magnified idea like special princess. Okay? So when everybody's always said Sarah means nagger and Sarah means princess, I, I don't think that's right anymore. In fact, the more I can, I can't find anywhere where the name Sarah means nagger. So anyway, so here we go. So, so in verse 29, Abraham took wives, uh, the name of Abraham's wife was Sarah. And that's her name is Sarah. And, and notice what it says at the end, verse 30. Sarah was barren and she had no child. Okay, now we don't know anything yet. But we are going to know that later on that Abraham is going to be the father of who? Jewish people. Well, if his wife's barren, how's that going to work? Right? If she can't have children or not having children, what's going to happen? And we're going to see what happens as we move into this. So let's move now into number two. This is the, the promise. This is the covenant. Now, I'm going to be writing some things on the board on this. I hope you can see it. There's, this, this is really amazing stuff. So let's look at it. Now, if you want to understand a covenant, a covenant is agreement between two parties. That's what a covenant is. As we begin chapter 12, we're going to see one of the major divisions of the Bible. God comes to Abram and makes a promise to him, makes a covenant to him. And if you've ever been in my other classes, you know that there are like seven covenants that God makes total. Five are with the human, excuse me, two are with the human race as a whole, and five are with the Jewish people. This is the first one with the Jewish people, and this sets a man apart, it sets a nation apart. So there are two kinds of covenants. I want you to just look, two kinds of covenants. There's an unconditional covenant, and, and by the way, this is a mistake. It should say God will do. An unconditional covenant is that God will do whatever he says he will do. Unconditionally means he's going to do it for me. I don't have to do anything. A conditional covenant, both parties are responsible. Now, here's a conditional covenant. When God gave them the Mosaic law, he says, you obey me and I will bless you. You disobey me, I will curse you. That's a conditional covenant. The covenant we're going to see tonight, the Abrahamic covenant, is an unconditional covenant. God will do. Now remember, as we go through this and you're writing all these things down, if you got a question, just, just stop me and, and make sure, because I want to make sure everybody knows what we're doing. So this is a promise that God makes, and God does it all. I want you to look at Genesis chapter 12. Look at, at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and anyone who curses you I will curse. And in all the families of the earth, in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. That is known as the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant. There it is. Okay? And this is a key... It sets the tone for the whole rest of the Bible because he makes a deal with Abram who really becomes what we call the first Jew and he does this. And by the way, listen, look, notice it's, it's all what God does. I will show you, I will make you, I will bless you, I will make you, I will bless those, I will bless those that bless you, I will curse those that curse you. He's going to do it all. Abraham doesn't have to do anything. Abraham doesn't have to live good. Abraham doesn't have to do anything. God says, I've chosen you, Abraham, and I'm going to do something for you. Now, by the way, just to help you, in Genesis 12, we actually see the covenant. In Genesis 15 is where he actually signs the covenant. You understand in the Old Testament, they didn't sign things like get a piece of paper and say, Abraham, I'm signing the covenant and I'm handing you the piece of paper. They didn't do that. They didn't have that. What they did is they killed an animal and cut it in two. And the two people who made the agreement walked between the, t the, the animal that was cut in two. We're going to see in Genesis chapter 15, since God is the only one doing it, God passes through the animal. 
We'll see it when we get to chapter 15. So I just want you to see how that works. So all of this is a powerful. Now, I want you to look down. Genesis 12, I got 12, 1 through 3, God does it all. I will show you, I will make you, I will bless you, I will do all of those things. There are three aspects in the covenant. I want you to see this. Three aspects in the covenant. The first one, it deals with the man Abraham. The man Abraham, he is a man of faith. He's a man of faith. In fact, the Bible over and over says that any of us who believe were children of Abraham because Abraham was a man of faith, we're people of faith. And so I want you to understand that Abraham was a great man because he was a man of faith. He believed God. Would you, if you live somewhere, and your wife, and your nephew, and your family, and God comes to you and says, I want you to leave and go to a place I will show you, and I'm going to do this, would you not say... Uh, could you back tell me where it is? I mean, you know, uh, I mean, you can see him going to Sarah and saying, "Packing up, we're leaving." And she says, "Where we're we going?" He says, "I have no idea, but I'm trusting God." He's a man of faith. He is also a pattern for justification. That's B. The Bible tells us over and over that we're justified by faith. And you go all the way back to Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. He was justified by faith. So he's a great picture of how we're saved. You're justified by what? By faith. You're declared righteous before God by your what? Faith. That's Abraham. Abraham did the same thing. The third thing, the promises that we see with this man Abraham, the promises are going to affect the whole rest of the Bible. And it deals with the nation of Israel. I don't know if you realize this, but the Bible is a book, is a Jewish book. Every author in the Bible is Jewish. Now, some people say that possibly Luke may not have been Jewish, but he probably was, best we can tell. So this is a Jewish book. You know, sometimes I'll meet with Jewish people that I have friends that are Jewish, and, and, uh, and, and we'll talk, and I'll talk about, you know, how much I love Jewish people. They say, why do you, why do you love us? I say, because my Savior's Jewish, and my favorite book is a Jewish book. I mean, let's face it, right? I mean, that's what it is. So the first aspect is this, this Abraham. The second aspect is the nation, the people, the Jewish Jews to become a nation, the offspring of Abraham. This is the part of this whole thing. I'm going to show you something in just a minute that we're going to put down, but I'm going to write it, I'm going to write it right now. And we'll come back to this in, a, in just a little bit. But when you look at it, you see that it affected the nation, the people. And then the number third thing is that it was universal. It was to all people. If you notice, it says, And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now let me ask you a question. How are you blessed because of the covenant that God made with Abraham? You know the answer. You're just afraid to say it. Where did Jesus Christ come from? Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah to David to Mary. The Savior of the world is based off this covenant right here. All the nations of the world will be blessed. How could Abraham bless all the nations? Because the Messiah and the Savior of the world comes through Abraham. That's who he is. That's what it's all about. So when we think about that, there are three areas. The man Abraham, the nation Israel, and all of mankind. That's all coming to this covenant. Now, if you notice, I've got down there three parts to the covenant, okay? Three parts to the unconditional covenant. Now, I want you to grasp this. This is very important. If you read it again, it says, Go to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. I'll bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. And in you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. There are three parts to this covenant. The first one is the land. The land. He says, go to a land that I'll show you, a land that I will give you. And he says that this is the land, we call it the land of Canaan. Now let me show you something that is so amazing. This is called the Abrahamic Covenant. God comes back and makes three more covenants with the nation of Israel. He comes back. And in the, in the Abrahamic covenant, it deals with the land, the seed, the blessed. Let me just show you that. The land is the land of promise, 
Uh, we'll come back. I'll come back to this in just a second. The land is the land of promise. Look at verse 7 The Lord appeared to, of chapter 12. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, To your descendants I will give this land. What land? What land? What land? Canaan or what? Israel. It's Israel, right? Now, we're going to see the dimensions when we get to chapter 15. And the dimensions aren't that little bitty part where they live today. The dimensions go all the way to the River Nile, all the way to the Tigris-Euphrates River. That's the land that he promised them. Now, that's the land. and that, So when people are arguing today, whose land is it? Whose land is it? It's a Jewish people's land. It's God gave it to them. And so here's the land, okay? And, and so we're going to see it. It's just amazing. Then there's a second aspect, and that's the seed. And because he says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. The great nation. So not only did he give them the land, which we call Israel, but the seed. The seed is actually going to be his offspring, but ultimately, the seed is who? Who? It's Jesus. Exactly. You understand that Jesus... If you, we did the book, we're doing the book of Matthew, right? And you, at the very start of Matthew, what do you have at the very beginning of the book of Matthew? The, the genealogy. These are the genera- genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David. The son of... Abraham. That's who he is. Jesus is, uh, is the offspring of Abraham. And so that God promises a land and a seed. And, and, and you know what? Abraham was thinking of this. He said, okay, well, I don't have any kids. I'm 75. And my wife is how old? Does anybody know how old she is? She's 65. She's 10 years younger than he is. Now, we're going to see something tonight which may shock you, okay? So she's 75 at this point. She's 65 at this point. And he says, God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. You're going to have a seed. And he probably says to himself, I, don't, I, I'm, I mean, she can't have babies. And, I, and I'm getting where I probably can't have babies. And so I don't know how we're going to do this, but I guess we're going to do this somehow. Maybe it's, my, maybe it's Lot. Maybe it's going to come through Lot, my nephew. Or maybe it's some other way it's going to happen. Who knows? But it's going to go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah to David to Mary. That's what it's going to, that's what it's going to be. And it's powerful. The third part of this covenant is a blessing. All the nations, all the families of the world will be blessed. Now, I want to show you something. In the Abrahamic covenant, there's what? Land? What else? Seed? What else? Blessing. The land is Israel. The seed ultimately is who? And the blessing is that all the nations and the salvation, right? Okay. After this, God comes back later and he makes three more covenants with the nation of Israel. Guess what? He comes back and makes what he called the Palestinian covenant and it deals with the land. He comes back later and goes to King David and makes a covenant, which we call the Davidic covenant, and it deals with the seed. He comes back later with Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, 30, 31 through 34, and it's called the blessing or the new covenant. So the, five, the four covenants that God made with Israel all basically starts with the Abrahamic, with land, seed, and blessing, and then comes back and says, land, seed, and blessing. You remember on Sunday mornings when we're seeing that Jesus is called the son of who? David. Why is he called the son of David? Because he's the offspring. It ties together. So this is what we're seeing. This is amazing truth. And, and when you put it together, this puts the whole Bible together. So Abrahamic covenant gives Israel the land Gives, gives through King David, the Davidic kingdom. Je- That's why we say that Jesus Christ is going to come one day and do what? Rule as the what? The king. The promise to David was his son would rule on the throne of Israel over the entire world. Has that happened yet? No, but it will. It will. And the blessing is to every human being. Because through, through Abraham 
and the land, seed, and blessing comes the Messiah and the Savior and salvation by faith. So it's, it's, it's really an amazing thing. So land, seed, blessing. I just want you to see how that fits together. It's powerful. Now, if you look at the top of the next page, it says, Through God's people, the Jews... Well, let me put that up there. Land, the land belongs to them forever. The seed is the great nation. Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, ultimately Christ. Blessings to all the nation. The Messiah brings the provision of salvation. So that's you should have that down. It's basically there. And I just want you to grasp it. I want you to understand it. We can go in more details later. But the Abrahamic covenant is, sets the tone for the whole Bible. Think about this. Let me just draw this for a second. Can I race this or are y'all okay? Have y'all got, do you need to write, anybody need to write this down? Okay, let me show you something. We always talk about end times, don't we? And Jesus died on the cross, paid for sin. We're in the church age, right? What's the next event? The rapture. Jesus Christ comes, gets us. Then what's next? Seven years, the tribulation. Then what happens? Jesus comes, the second coming, and he comes as the what? The king and rules for how long? A thousand years. Why do we hold to that? Because you go back over here to Abraham who said he would have a son who would be the Messiah and king. And it goes down to David and the Davidic covenant in Second Samuel chapter 7 verses 12 through 17 is the covenant that says one day the Messiah will reign right there. So when, when we say that what Abraham gets here and how it's passed down, people say, well, I don't care about all that. You do care about all that. That's why we believe what we believe. That's how we put the Bible together. When, when we say that the Abrahamic covenant sets the tone for everything, it does. It sets the tone for, for everything we're doing. Okay, so got it? Good stuff. Now we're going to get into some more stuff. Second <laughs> Samuel 7, 12 through 17. So the Jewish people, what do they give us? Two things. The Word of God. You ever thought about that? We look at the Bible, and, and how many Christians throughout history have hated Jewish people? Listen, you know who's been the greatest persecution shooter, shooter of the Jew, Jewish people? It's Christians. It's a most unbelievable thing. When Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid for sin and rose again, he started the church. Was the church at the beginning Jewish or Gentile? Almost all Jewish. Almost all Jewish. But very soon, many Gentiles begin to trust in Jesus Christ. That was fantastic. And as you go through about the first hundred years of the church, there are more and more Gentiles believing, but, the, but there's Jews everywhere. But as you start into the second century, in the 100s, 130s, 140s, 150s, suddenly people begin to change. And a guy by the time you get into the 200s and 300s, a guy by the name of Origen came in, and he began to say that the Jewish people... Uh, you can't trust them. They were responsible for Christ's death. What were the Jewish people called? Christ killers. You understand that throughout history, the Catholic Church persecuted Jewish people and killed millions of them. That's why when you start talking to Jewish people and you say you're a Christian, when they identify a Christian, they don't identify a person like us who says, we love Jewish people, we love Jesus, we love you, we want you to know Christ. We want, you know, they picture us as hating them as a whole. Christ killers. And so but what we have, we have the greatest book of all time. It is the Word of God. It is without error. It is perfect and true. And who gave it to us? God gave it to us using what people? Jewish people. Think about that. And then who, he gave us the Messiah. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says that he is the Messiah, but according to his flesh, he is a Jew. If you've seen these drawings of Jesus and he's got blonde hair and blue eyes, I don't think so. If you say, what did Jesus look like? Take a picture of a Jewish person and that's who it, Jesus looked like. It's amazing. And so we, we have, the Jewish people have given us the two greatest things. The Word of God which abides forever and our Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of the world. Wow. So, Abraham... Here he is. So let's see what happens. You ready to get into his life? So let's look. Here we are, chapter 12. We've just seen that God gave him the, the greatest 
uh, promise of all. Now think about this. You're Abraham. You're 75 years old. You have a wife named Sarah. You have no children. You've adopted your brother's son, Lot, because he has nobody, and your your father's dead. You were willing to leave. God came to you and said, I want you to leave where you're living, and I want you to go to a place that I'm going to show you. And it was a long, long way away. You saw that map. You know, they, they started right here, Ur the Chaldees, and they went all the way up to Haran, and then they went all over later. Why didn't they go across? Huh? It's, it's desert. Desert and some water, but mostly desert. So they, had, they went up to Haran. His father died. They came all the way down. Because here's Tigris Euphrates River here. This is, uh, the, this is desert. And so they... Uh, the lower part of Jordan, and if you get down to the Sinai Peninsula, nobody wants that. Even the Jews gave it back twice to the Egyptians. You know? Uh, so, uh, so here we see Abraham, and, and God says, I want you to leave. And so you travel, and you travel, and you come to a place, and you don't even know where you are. All you know is God says, this is it. And look at verse 4. So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot was with him. Now Abraham was how old? Abraham was 75 years old. Now when you think of 75, uh, do you think that's sort of getting toward the end? Well, it really is. I mean, well, no, for some of us, no. I think it was just the beginning. But anyway, the bottom line is, even in those days, you hear people, some of these guys lived 100 and something. But after the flood, oh, before the flood, people lived 800, 900 years. It was a canopy. After the flood, there's no canopy. Immediately, the next generation after the flood lived 300 years. After that, 200 years. After that, 100 years. After that, and even when Job writes and, and Moses writes, and they say, if a man has 70 years, Wow. So even 70 years was a normal lifetime, and many people didn't, make, didn't even live past that. And think of all the people, if you started putting the average age of people, so many people died in birth that the average age, the life expectancy was like 40, 45. So to be in 75 years old, he was considered what? An old man. Now think about Moses just for a second. How old was Moses when he left the palace and got into trouble and had to leave? Anybody know he was 40 years old. How many years was he on the backside of the desert? 40 years. He was 80 years old when he led the nation of Israel out of Egypt. Just think about those ages. And so here he is, 75 years old. How old is his wife? She's 65 because she's 10 years younger. Just remember that. That's, that's, that, well, that's going to play into effect in just a minute. And we're going to see what God does because he's left... And, and, and I, it's just so amazing. No, go ahead. So Abraham took Sarah's wife and Lot his nephew and all the possessions where they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Iran. And they set out for the land of Canaan. And they came to the land of Canaan. And they end up going. They get to a place called Shechem. And they go to the Oaks of Moriah. Now the Canaanites were living in the land. And watch what God does. It says, the Lord appears, right? The Lord appears. Why? Notice, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants... I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord that appeared to him. I want to stop for just a second. And I want you to notice carefully. So he, why did the Lord appear to him? It's to reaffirm the what? The covenant. What's the covenant? The land, the seed, and the blessing. Now I want you to notice something. Tell me, if you read that verse very carefully, what do you notice? The Lord appeared to Abram and said... To your descendants, I will give this land. You're not going in. Well, he's in it. Well, I mean. Who gets the land? His descendants. That'd be like Isaac and Jacob and the twelve and, and all that. Abraham never possessed the land. He never owned any part of the land. In fact, we're going to see in a couple of weeks when Sarai dies... He didn't have a place to bury her because he didn't own any of the land. Now, who promised him the land? Who does the land belong to? It was him. It's his, but he doesn't own any of it. And that's why God says to him here, to your descendants, I will give this land. Because he never possesses it. He never owns it. The only part he owns is the part he, he paid a big price. He, he double paid. The guy ripped him off. He, he wanted to buy a place at the Oaks of Memory, this place right here. He wanted to buy a little part at the end where there was an oak tree and so he could bury Sarah, Sarah 
And the guy says, yeah, okay, I'll give it to you. And he said, no, you can't give it to me because Abraham knew deep down, it's really mine anyway, but you can't. And the guy said, well, how about this price? And it was like, it'd be like saying, you want to buy this house? And we'd say, well, the house normally is 100000 the guy says, how about 500000 And Abraham never batted an eye and said, I'll buy it. So we'll see it when we get to that part. So what does, what does Abraham do when God comes to him and he says, to your descendants I will give this land? What does he do? How does Abraham respond? Look what he does. He built an altar. He worshipped the Lord. That's what he did. Notice what it says. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Do you know, have you seen Abraham build an altar before? Anywhere in the scripture? From, from Genesis 12 is where Abraham really, the end of chapter 11 to where we are, he's mentioned, that's him. Has he ever built an altar before that you know of? What's an altar for? Altars are actually for two different things. It's a place of sacrifice and worship, okay? So uh, places of, uh, it should say place of, but it says places of sacrifice and worship. That's what an altar is for. And so his, his response was to sacrifice to God and to worship. I want you to think about this for a second. In fact, just for, I've got, uh, if you notice, the next page, six, bottom page six and top of page seven, I've got another one and two because I want us to think about sacrifice for a second. You ever thought about it? A sacrifice. What is a sacrifice? It's something you give up. So God actually told them, I want you to take your very best animal and sacrifice it. I mean, you, you didn't go find the worst one. You didn't go find the runt. You didn't go find one that had a bad leg. You, just, you had to get your best one and sacrifice. And all the way through the Old Testament, you see these sacrifices. At the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, what did God do? God killed an animal and gave them the coats of skin. And so a sacrifice has this idea of blood and giving. And, and so when you think about a sacrifice, I want you to just under number one, besides just writing the word sacrifice, think the idea that God had a sacrifice to us. God offered himself to us. Think about it. And when I say to us, I mean dying on the cross. Because the blood of animals can't take away sin. Hebrews 10.4 says the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. But Jesus is the final sacrifice for sin forever. So when you think of sacrifice, all these animals just covered sin. But Jesus Christ on the cross paid for sin. That's a sacrifice. Now... We don't offer sacrifices today, right? Yeah, we offer sacrifices. It's ourselves. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as holy and living what? Sacrifice. We. we. So in the back aspect of this, Romans 12, 1 and 2, we offer ourselves as sacrifices. This is those who have come to know Christ as he has paid for our sin. We have trusted in him. We have eternal life. What does he want us to do in Romans 12? Believers, I beseech you therefore, brethren, offer your lives as sacrifices. So when we look at these sacrifices in the Old Testament, as we see what these are doing, they're acts of worship. They're giving to God. They're giving the very best thing that God told them to do, kill that. It's a picture of the coming Messiah. But at the same time, we can sacrifice our lives to Him in service. Now, it has nothing to do with our salvation, but it has to do with our service and our rewards. There's a second aspect, and that's worship. So when he, see, it says he built an altar to the Lord that appeared to him there. An altar is a place of, of, of worship as well. It's not only a place of sacrifice, but a place of worship. And worship is, by the way, let, let me just raise this question, because I hear this all the time. What, what is worship? The giving of yourself. Huh? The giving of yourself to, to serve the Lord. Okay, so... Okay, okay. Well, that worship really is what? It's response to God. That's what it is. When people say worship, now a lot of times nowadays, if you come to a church, people think worship's the music. And they'll say, I really love the worship and then I really like the teaching. Or I really love the worship, I didn't care for the teaching. I mean, you know, whatever. But they think the worship is the music part. Worship is responding to God. And so let me raise a question. How, how can we worship God? Think about this. As we pray, as we sing, as we give, as we study, as we take the truths of the Bible and apply them in our lives, that's how we can worship. 
You know, I, I, I wonder sometimes if we're so used to going to church, to just getting up and going to church, that when we walk in there and we got friends and we're laughing and everything and it's so fun and I think we ought to and I think we ought to talk with each other, but then we have that part where the music kind of starts and then we say, let's prepare for worship. I wish that we would all, I hope us all that we would say, okay, I am here to respond to who my God is and what he's done for me. And that's why a lot of times I'll get up and say we're gathered this morning to worship our Savior who died and rose again for us and to be trained and equipped to serve Him. Why have we come together? It's to worship Him. It's to say, you are God. You are the Savior. You're the one that died for me. You're the one that gives me eternal life. You're the one who rose from the grave. You're the one that gave me the Bible. You're the one that I'm going to sing these songs to. You're the one that I'm going to take what you've given to me and I'm going to give a portion of it back. You are my God and my Savior as I sing, as I pray, as I give, as I study, as I make application. And too often I think we can sing the songs and never even think about the words. We, we can give and, and, and not even give. Just say, oh, you know, it says, as you want to give. Well, I don't want to give. <laughs> or, gosh, I don't have anything to give because I spend it all on everything else. And so we don't even think about coming to God and saying, everything I have is yours. This voice to praise you is yours. These songs, this prayer, this giving, this studying, this understanding, this application, this all for you and who you are. So I want you to really think about as we think about what Abraham did. He, he worshipped God and, and, uh, and all of that. So just an amazing stuff. So let's see what happens because we, we're going to now get to the third part. And this is the part that's sad. And his faith. Let me ask you a question. How's Abraham done so far? I mean, he was in a place that, that was pagan, and he listened to God, and he left, and he came all the way to a land that he didn't even know where he was going, and he got there, and God said, don't, rem- don't, rem- don't forget, remember, this is for you. Land, seed, blessing. And he worships God. Now watch what happens. And, you know, it's so easy... Um, it's so easy to fail. How many of us failed today? Hmm? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I failed before I even got much out of bed and even walk into it brush my teeth, right? I mean, it's just, it's so easy. And we look at the people in the Bible and we say, can you believe what David did? Yeah, yeah, I can. Can you believe what Moses did? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. How about, oh, Adam and Eve, I can't believe that they were in the garden and they were willing to eat of that tree. I guarantee if you were there, you'd have been saying, can y'all get a barrel so we can put these things in them? You know, so let's see what happens to him. Verse 10, now there was a famine in the land, so Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now let me ask you something. What's in the land? There's a famine. Okay, a famine. Whose land is this? It's Abram's, right? Did God say, this is your land? He's not going to possess it. Not now, not to, but this is his land that God's promised him, right? Land, seed, blessing. Why does he go down to Egypt? There's a famine in the land, but what is he supposed to do, you think? Say, Lord, I don't understand the famine, but I'm, you know, I'm not leaving the land that you've given me. But notice what it says. There was a famine in the land, so he decided to go to Egypt. Sometimes does God allow things to come into our lives to test us? What should he probably have done? Gone to Egypt? In fact, we're going to find out going to Egypt didn't turn out to be such a good deal, right? And we're going to see what happens. F.B. Meyer writes this. He says he acted on his own judgment. He looked at the difficulties without thinking about the heavenly things. So watch what happens. Now, remember how old is he? He said, how old is she? Sixty-five. Watch this. It came about when he came near to Egypt, verse 11, that he said to Sarah, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. Okay? And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Now he says, I'm afraid that when we get down there, and they're going to say, You're so beautiful, that they will say, Okay, let's just kill the guy, and then we can have her. Is he trusting God right now? Does he know that God said what's going to happen to him? What has God promised him? A land, a seed, and a blessing. If he gets killed down there because of his wife, is there going to be land, seed, blessing? No. Is he trusting God? 
Is he, is he really saying to himself, okay, I'm going to have all kind of kids and everything because that's what God promised. A great nation is going to come from me and all the world is going to be blessed through me and the Messiah is going to come through me and everything. But I'm afraid if I go down there, they'll kill me. And so what does he tell her to do? Look at the next verse. When the Egyptians see you, verse 12, they'll say, this is his wife. They will kill me. Please say that you are my sister. So it may go well with me because of you and I may live on your account. What did he do? He said, tell him you're my sister. Truth is, by the way, she was his half-sister, you know. They had the same, same mother, but not the same father. And he lied. Now, he thinks, if I lie, and they think she's my sister, they will treat me good, because she's so what? Beautiful, yeah. So look what happened. It came back when Abraham came into Egypt. The Egyptians saw that the woman was very what? Beautiful. She's not 22, y'all. She's 65. Okay. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the king. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. Wait a minute. So when he get there and he says, this is my sister. And everybody, whoa, boy, he got a good looking sister. Pharaoh, you should see this woman. Pharaoh says, okay, just, she's mine. Bring her on in. And we're going to take care of the guy. Get the guy a couple of camels. Okay. Take care of him. Do good stuff. We'll take your sister. Your sister will become my wife. Does anything sound wrong there? <laughs> What's going to happen to the promise? Who's Abraham married to? Sarah. Sarah. Who's supposed to? Where's the Messiah supposed to come? Through Abraham and Sarah. But Sarah's now going to be the wife of a Pharaoh? Does this sound good? No. This doesn't sound good at all. What's Abraham doing over there? Counting the camels? I've got 37 camels over here now. No, what's going to happen? Therefore, look at verse 16. Therefore, he treated Abraham well for her sake, and he gave him sheep and donkey and oxen and male, female servants and female donkeys and camels. He's given him everything. Wow. He should trust God's promises, not his own plans. You ever messed up? You ever, you know, knowing that's what you know, and you ever messed up? Wow. Do we see, I've got written down there, what did Abraham Sarah tell Sarah to do, because, you know, tell his sister? So Pharaoh took Sarah. What's the problem? What's the real problem? Do you realize the problem? Will this jeopardize the promise? Yes. Yes. So we want to say to Abraham, hey, hey, are you not thinking? What's the promise to you? How could you let this happen? Well, you could say, Abraham said, well, I was just so afraid they'd kill me. And, and, you know, I knew they would treat me well if I told them. I didn't know Pharaoh was going to take her. What do you think Pharaoh was going to do? Now, how's the seed going to come? Let me ask you a question. If something doesn't happen, how's the Messiah going to come? You know, all of us in this room should be going, you better get this thing straight because our whole life depends on it. Isn't it Right? Because if there is no seed, there's no Messiah, there's no Savior, we got nothing. The whole world is in the balance right here. And it doesn't seem like it does. We read that verse like it's absolutely nothing. The whole world is in the balance. So, watch. Uh, you know, God is so amazing. God is so amazing. God's going to intervene. Look what happens. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. The word plagues is smiting diseases. That's what the Hebrew actually says. Smiting diseases. We don't know what it was, but uh, struck Pharaoh with smiting diseases. And, and let me just say this. The, God's not going to let this happen. In fact, Alan Ross, Ross was one of my professors at Dallas Seminary and he was, he was the Hebrew scholar. And he said this, the divine preservation of the purity of Sarah was for the sake of the promise. He's got he's to save Sarah to keep the promise going. God's going to do it. Not Abraham. Why not? Because Abraham's over there with the camel going, I'm, I'm afraid. And, and we'd say, Abraham, I thought you were better than this. I mean, you trusted God to leave. You trusted God to come down here. You built an altar. You offered sacrifice. You worshipped God. How could you do this? And then we look at our lives and say, we go on Sunday morning and we sing the songs and we hug one another and then we walk out the door and then we do something. We go, how could I do that? Right? Because that's who we are. And so look what happened. It said, then Pharaoh called Abram and he said, what is this you've done to me? Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? 
Now here, then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And I want you to understand that Pharaoh commands Abraham to leave. And by the way, this is not a nice leave. This is not like... Uh, Come if you can, you know, you know, stay as long as you wish. He basically said, you get out. Isn't it embarrassing? This is not going to be the first time. Go ahead, what? Now, now back then, now Pharaoh, like, who knows what he did, but was it against whatever they did to take somebody's wife? Not Pharaoh could do anything I he mean, wanted I know he to. he could do whatever he wanted, but yeah. the other, I mean, it, because it was almost like an abominable, get out of here, then take your wife and get out of here. Oh, the Pharaoh was telling Abraham to get out. And he's saying, you tricked me and made me take your wife. And, I mean, Pharaoh said, I I thought she was your sister. I'm not trying to do something bad. Well, because it was an embarrassment to the Pharaoh. Yeah. I mean, Abraham lied to the king and let him take his wife. And so, huh? He, he probably could have, but he didn't. What he did is he just told him to get out. He, it, he said, he said, she's my sister. He said, you said, she's my sister, so I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Notice, Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they, what? Escorted him away. Get out of here. And they just marched him out. I mean, it's an embarrassment to, it's an embarrassment to the Pharaoh, but it's really an embarrassment to Abraham. Because, by the way, Abraham's a wealthy person. He's already wealthy. You can see that. God's already blessing him. And, and, and now he's, he's got to leave, and it makes it look so bad. So Abraham commands Pharaoh to leave. And Martin Luther wrote this. He said, It was humbling for the man of God to be rebuked by the heathen king. But God intervened. God saved us, didn't he? God saved us. Just like when he was going to destroy the whole world, God saw Noah, <coughs> saved us all. In the circumstances of life, how do we respond? What do we do? Now, let me ask you something. If you're Abram, how do you feel about all this? If it was us, we'd go, well, that's it. I guess, I guess those promises are over. No, are God's promises ever over? No. I want you to see how Pharaoh respond. I mean, how Ab- Abraham responded to this. Look at verse uh, chapter 13, just for a second. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and his belongings with him. Now look at verse 2. Now Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. But look at verse 3. He went... Well, that's okay. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You're, you're out of the class. But anyway, don't... <laughs> don't worry about it. You're out of the class. Can you believe what Abraham did? You could believe what she just did. No, I just can't. That's <laughs> going her out. You told me that was not your radio. But anyway, okay. <laughs> anyway, he says, He went on his journey from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. He goes right back where he started from. And look what he did. To the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. And what did he do? What does it say? He called on the name of the Lord. He went back to Bethel, had that altar, the altar that he had made, and he called upon the name of the Lord. You know what he's doing? He's starting over. He's going back to God and saying, I blew it. I want to show you this map. And I don't know if you can see it, but he had been, they had been down. This is where originally where they were in Ur, and they went up to Haran, and then they came down to right there. And then they went down to Egypt, and he got in trouble. So he comes all the way back to Bethel. Do you know what the name Bethel means? It means house of God. He comes back to the house of God. And what does he do? He calls upon the name of the Lord. Do you know what he's doing? He's starting over. Hey, what do you do when you blow it? You start over. You say, I blew it. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. What do we say? Lord, if we confess our sins, he's what? Faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. And what do we say right then? I'm right back ready to go. What's going to happen to Abraham? He's going to be right back ready to go. Sometimes we need to start over. Sometimes we blow it. And sometimes we need to start over. So let me give you some applications, okay? The first one is this. Let us understand that God always keeps his promises. He always does. Why? Why does he always keep his promises? Because he can't what? He can't lie. And what's the second thing? He's all powerful. 
Whatever promise he makes, he's able to do. So let's understand that God always keeps his promises. Let me ask you a question. Tell me, somebody tell me a promise that God has made to us. He's what? He's promised us eternal life, right? Do you have it? Of course. What else? He forgets our sins. He is exactly right. When we trust in Jesus Christ, he forgives our sins. And when we confess our sins, he forgives us. Yeah. What else? What's another promise? Huh? He'll never leave us or forsake us. Exactly. What's another promise? My God shall supply all your needs, right? I mean, just over and over. He says, I'll give you the Holy Spirit, right? Do we have the Holy Spirit? Exactly right. Do you have spiritual gifts? Yeah, I mean, everything he's ever promised us, do we have? Can we count on it? Always. That's the first one. The second one is this. Let's understand the Abrahamic covenant. What are the three parts of the Abrahamic covenant? You remember? Land, seed, blessing. There it is. Land, seed, blessing. And Abraham never owns the land, but it's his. Let me ask you this story, and let me throw this out, and then we'll, we're going to see this next week. Do you remember when he and Lot, and Lot had property, and he had property, and then they couldn't get along together? Do you remember that? And Abraham said to Lot, listen, we're family. We can't be fussing like this. You pick wherever you want to be, and I'll go the opposite direction. Some people say, Abraham, this is your land. This is what God promised you. Why was Abraham able to say, just pick wherever you want? It's all Abraham's. It's all his anyway. He doesn't care. He just says, wherever you go, I'll go this way. And, of course, Lot chose the well-watered plains of the Jordan, which was where Sodom and Gomorrah were, which not a good choice, okay? So let's, let's understand the Abrahamic covenant. I hope you do. Put the whole Bible together. Let's worship our God and Savior. There's two aspects there. There's sacrifice and praise. There's the place of sacrifice. There's the place of worship. There's praise. I want us, what, why don't we, when we come to church on Sunday, why don't when, when I get up at the start and I say, we're so glad you're here this morning, we've come together to worship our Savior. Let's think right then. Okay, I'm going to actually think about who He is and what He's done. And when I sing those songs, and when I hear the Bible taught, and when it's time to give, and when we pray, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually focus on who I'm talking to. I'm talking to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Savior of the world, my God, my Savior, my, and and. You know, I hear people say things like, well, I didn't get anything out of it. What did you put in it? I mean, you're not there to get out. You're there to give. Worship is responding. Worship is you giving to God. That's what worship is. I mean, we come together on a, and, and even tonight, we're worshiping him. Look at what we've looked at. Who is he? What is he like? What has he done for Abraham? I mean, just it's beyond comprehension. God said, I'm choosing a man to bring a Savior to save the entire world. I'm picking this man out, and he's going to have a, a nation. He's going to have blessings. He's, the whole world's going to be blessed in him because I'm sending through this man the Savior of the world. Wow. I mean, thank you, Lord. May we never forget it. The last thing is let's trust God in the circumstances of life. What should, let's think back. If we just, because we know it, we weren't there, we'd probably make the same mistake Abraham made. But if we were there, when the famine came, what would we have done? Huh? Well, what we what, what we should we have done if we trust God in the circumstances? What should we have done? Probably stay in the land and say, God, I know it's a famine, but I'm staying in the land unless you tell me to go somewhere else. I'm not going anywhere else because this is where you told me to go. Where is he? He's at Bethel, right, the house of God, and he leaves Bethel and goes down to Egypt, which is pagan. And uh, so let's trust God in the circumstances of life. And let me just say this: sometimes we sin. When we sin, what do we do? Confess, and what we do, we start over and we remember the promises.